It's interesting, again, in the providence of God, how he lines things up sometime, this being the uh, day considered Palm Sunday by many who uh, follow the church calendar. Our sermon text, as we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew, happens to be the triumphal entry of Christ. Now, this is Matthew 20, verses 1 through 17. You can find it in your worship folder on page 8, I believe. Uh, follow along with me now. This is the word of God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went to the city of Bethany and lodged there. And this is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now as we consider your word again that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we would look upon the face of Jesus Christ, that through the proclamation of your word, your spirit would work both in the hearts of your people, confirming once again the truth of the gospel, and the hearts of those who do not bow to Christ, that you would soften them and open them and help them to see the life that is theirs if they would but submit to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the publishers of most English Bibles, they will label the narrative that we just read this morning as the triumphal entry, or Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem. And, and that isn't a bad description of what we see unfolding here, uh, but 
there's so much more going on than just Jesus coming into Jerusalem. You see, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, it is overloaded with messianic significance. And here in Matthew 20, there are multiple themes of Scripture uh, and aspects of the Bible and redemptive history that are now coming together in this great moment. In fact, Jesus' triumphal entry, I believe, is just as significant in God's redemptive purposes as much as uh, his other works, including the cross and his resurrection. This incident in the life of Christ is the beginning of a very public confrontation of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus has, at this point, days left on earth before he goes to the cross. Mere days. Because by Friday, he will be hanging on that cross. This account reveals much to us again of the nature of his kingship and his kingdom. But more than that, it confronts all of us. It confronts all of us boldly with the fact that Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king. And it forces us to a a crossroads. You see, we will either submit to him or we will reject him. Jesus leaves us no option here. For we see that Jesus boldly declares that he is the king. There are many details in this story as they unfold that are meant to be deliberate and clear, bold statements of Jesus' authority. He's not hiding anything back at this point. He's saying to Jerusalem, I am your Messiah. I am the Christ. I am am the King. So let's look at some of those. First, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem, not on foot, not walking, but on a donkey, riding an animal. The time of of course, of Jesus' entrance here into the city is that of Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been making the pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover there. And normally, people would be on foot. They did not travel on animals at this time. Uh, They would walk on foot. Now, the journey that Jesus makes on this day from the village of Bethpage just outside of Jerusalem, to to the city, is about one mile. And so he is going to ride on an animal for one mile, which would elevate him above the crowds. And that was designed deliberately to capture the people's attention. This says there is somebody to notice. Jesus was sending a message. And all who witnessed the event clearly understood that message. You see, kings ride upon the backs of animals when they enter into city. Also notice the way Jesus procures this animal. He he tells the disciples to go into the village of Bethpage and, and there they would find a donkey and her colt tied up with her. And the disciples were simply to walk into the village. There's the donkey, there's the colt. Untie them and then lead them over to Jesus. Now, doesn't that seem kind of crazy? I mean, if anybody else were to walk into the town, a little village, and everybody's, you know, watching what's happening in the street, you know that. 
And they, these disciples, they walk in and they just start untying somebody else's animals and lead them out. Somebody's going to say something. I mean, this, this would be considered theft. What are you doing taking these animals that are not yours? But you see, if a king needs something for the good of his kingdom and the good of his people, it is his divine right to take that thing, to acquire it. And so Jesus anticipates that people are going to stop and ask the disciples, what on earth are you doing? And so he instructs them in verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And so when stopped, they simply say, the Lord, the king, he needs them. And the owner would then say, by all means, take them and send them on their way. A second detail we see that boldly declares Jesus' kingship is these garments and palms. Uh, that we see here. We read in verse 7 that the disciples, first they, they take off their own cloaks and they put them on the back of the colt so that Jesus would have a seat on which to sit comfortably. Now cloaks, they are a personal item. They're designed to keep you warm, to keep you clean. Uh, as you journeyed along the road, keeping the dust off, they're designed to protect you from the sun and the rain. And the heat and the cold. And so giving them to Jesus in willing submission is submitting themselves to them. They're willing to say, I will suffer discomfort so that my king might come in comfort. They're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of all that we can give to you. Take our cloaks and use them. And of course, as Jesus approaches the city, we read that the crowds, at least some in the crowd, were taking off their cloaks and laying them in the dirt before them. Others took the branches of palms and laid them as well before him. And the idea here is that a king entering in the city is so worthy and honorable that even the feet of the animal upon which he rides should not have to tread upon the dusty ground. This is to add a a festive air to the event. It's like rolling out the red carpet. It isn't a subtle gesture. It's meant to be noticed. It's meant to show honor. It's meant to say that this man riding into the city is a person of high honor. This is the king. The third thing Jesus does in this narrative to boldly declare that he is the king is that he actually accepts the praise of the people. As he moves through the streets, the people shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is an ancient Aramaic word. It it literally means help or save. It'd be similar to saying God save the king or God bless America. It was a term of high honor reserved only for royalty. In fact, It eventually became a term of the highest honor as it was used in the worship of God. It was a form of liturgical adoration. Saying Hosanna in the highest was the equivalent of saying praise the Lord, praise God. 
this messianic language shows up in Psalm 118, which is what we call a Hallel Psalm. Hallel Psalms, which is where we get the word hallelujah, were psalms of praise and thanksgiving that the people of God would sing as they went up to Jerusalem. And it is full of this messianic language. It, it, Psalm 18 speaks of God's appointed king leading the people into his presence so that they might worship him and enjoy him. Um, and this, this leading of the people into God's presence is also spoken of in Psalm 118 as the salvation of God's people. And so we see this connection between him saving his mighty works to save them, to deliver them, and their worship of him. In the Psalm 118, the people cry out to God to save them, and he does through a king who, we are told, opens the gates of righteousness so that they might enter through. And this king who brings salvation is identified as the Lord God himself. Thus the psalm declares, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And so these people in Jerusalem, as Jesus enters, they're calling out to him as king, as the king, the Lord God himself, the savior of Psalm 118. And Jesus doesn't refuse that praise. He accepts it. He embraced it for that is who he was. Which brings us to a final detail in this narrative where we see Jesus boldly declaring that he is the king. And that is that he fulfills every prophecy regarding God's king, God's Messiah, the Savior. In other words, he's not just a king entering Jerusalem that day. No, he is the king of kings. He isn't just the king of the Jews. He is the king of all creation. And every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are two instances here where we see Jesus fulfilling in detail uh, specific prophecies regarding him being the Messiah. The first is in, um, in Zechariah 9, 9 where we read these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and on the foal of a donkey. And here we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on what? On a donkey, thus fulfilling perfectly the words of Zechariah. And now, the words there in Zechariah's uh, prophetic oracle, they were understood by the people of Jerusalem at this time, especially the religious leaders, to speak of nobody else other than God himself. They knew that. And yet here is Christ then, fulfilling that, declaring, I am this king, I am your Lord God Almighty. He isn't hiding his divinity. 
Then again, we see another instance where Christ fulfills prophecy and is at the end of our narrative after he's driven out the money changers, which we'll consider in a moment. And he confronts the Pharisees, the scribes, the uh, high priests, and they're upset by what the people are calling him. They're upset, especially that children are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, because they know what they mean. They know that the people are identifying Christ as God. And they say, do you hear what the people are saying to you, Jesus? Can you believe this? And Jesus simply says, well, yeah, because they're right. Haven't you heard? Don't you know what was written in Psalm 2? That out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? I mean, that's a bold declaration. He's saying, yeah, it is right for them to say that because that's who I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the I am, the God who has come in flesh to deliver my people. I am. Now, as bold as Jesus was in declaring that he is king, we still see also in this text, though, that he is a misunderstood king. He still wasn't coming as the king the people really wanted. There's still confusion about him and about his kingdom and how the salvation that he brings will come. The fervor of the crowds, while right and expected and good, also betrays a side that they still didn't understand exactly who Jesus was and how he was bringing his salvation. You see, they still wanted a king who would break the power of Rome. They wanted a political king. They wanted a warlord. They wanted a king who would lead a rebellion, not a king who would offer himself up as a ransom. I mean, consider the very steed upon which Jesus rides. It's a donkey. Do you ever see kings historically, going back into history, riding upon donkeys? And not really. Kings ride horses, big horses, war horses. And there's a reason you don't see portrayals of ancient battles, either in art or film or literature, uh, of generals or kings riding on donkeys. Instead, they're mounted upon imposing, powerful, intimidating animals, horses. Uh, For example, at the siege of Vienna in 1683, the Polish-winged hussars led by uh, King John III Sobieski charged with 20,000 horsemen into 150,000 Ottomans, and he scattered them to the wind. They ran back to Istanbul. That's what a king on a horse can do. Now, it's hard to think of a battle like that or any battle with a cavalry charge uh, involving men riding on donkeys. It's just not intimidating. It's kind of hilarious to think about. On a horse, you can charge into your enemies and trample over them. On a donkey, well, you're an easy, slow-moving target. On a horse, you can overwhelm the enemy line. On a donkey, you're going to easily be overwhelmed. And Jesus, the King of Kings rode on a donkey. He was riding to his death. He was submitting himself to his enemies, not trampling them overfoot, 
but coming to them to be trampled under their feet in sacrifice. This isn't the king the people wanted. The people wanted that conquering patriotic king. And as Jesus enters in the city, Matthew explains to us that the whole city was stirred up. That's interesting language. It's basically to say there's an uproar. It's the same reaction we see at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel when the Magi come to King Herod and they want to find the place where the king, Jesus, was born. And we read there at the beginning of Matthew that the city, the whole city, was stirred up. You see, the Herodian line, they were not Jewish. They were a Roman puppet government. They were Gentiles ruling over the people. But if a Jewish king were to come marching into Jerusalem and sit on the throne of David, well, that meant, hey, the powers are getting overthrown. It meant rebellion. Rebellions cause quite a stir. That's what the people wanted. They're overwhelmed with patriotic fervor. In fact, we see that even in the cry of Hosanna. While it is a right cry, while it is a cry of praise, it had become known as a patriotic cry. It was a cheer of Jewish patriotism. It was nationalistic. And so for some in the crowds, no doubt, that is what they thought. Hey, here comes the conqueror, the king who will overthrow Rome. And so for many who were shouting out this adulation in the streets, it was a call simply for societal change, not for salvation from their sins. And that is why by the end of the week, by Friday, you see the same people in this crowd calling out for Jesus' death. They wanted a king but they wanted a king that conformed to their ideals. You see, that happens so often with Jesus. We want Jesus to the bend to the will of our ideals of who he should be, what kind of king he is, rather than receive him and submit to him as the king that he is. We want Jesus to ride on a war horse, not a donkey. We want Jesus who will overlook our sin and accept us for who we are rather than shine the light of his perfect holiness on us and expose the dark corners of our hearts so that he might deliver us from our evil ways. Or we want a Jesus who is simply angry all the time, raining down fire and brimstone on those who we believe are our enemies, crushing them under his feet. Or we want a patriotic Jesus, a Jesus who pushes the values of our preferred political party rather than his kingdom. Or we want a Jesus who conforms to our agenda rather than his. But here's the thing. While Jesus often is not the king that we want, he is always the king that we need. He is the king that we need. And so as he boldly declares his kingship, he, he does so as that king, that king that we absolutely need. And he's calling out to us, forcing us to a decision here, forcing us to either crown him or to crucify him. What kind of king would he be? See, the king that we need is a king that is, first of all, gentle and humble. 
And that is exactly who Jesus is. He comes to Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. That was the intent of Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus would come to establish his kingdom, not through violence, but through gentleness and peace. He does not come to smash his enemies, but to be sacrificed for them. And it is through that gentleness, that humility, that he offers himself up willingly for his people. You see, it's not that Jesus cannot crush us. He absolutely can, and he has every right to do so. He is perfectly holy and just, and we are unjust sinners, every one. In fact, we see him later in Scripture riding not upon a donkey, but upon a horse in judgment upon those who reject him and refuse him. But here he comes willfully now to you on a donkey in gentleness, in humility. And that's how we need him to come if we are to have any hope of salvation. We need him to come to us and say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Not only is Jesus a gentle king, though, but he is also a confrontational king. Now, that might seem like a contradiction at first, but it isn't. It is, in fact, uh, that because he is gentle and lowly, he can confront the things that need to be confronted. After Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, what's the first thing he does? He goes straight to the temple where he finds the money changers and the buyers and the sellers of goods, we are told, that have made a mockery of true religion and worship by making it a matter of commerce. And he grabs hold of their tables and he throws them over. He makes a righteous ruckus. And why did Jesus do this? I mean, it almost seems out of character with this idea of being humble and gentle and lowly and coming in on a donkey. Well, consider, first of all, what he isn't doing here. He isn't leading some sort of popular social movement against the idea of commerce. Jesus isn't a communist. He isn't against the idea of trade, buying and selling. But he's very much against that taking place where it is taking place. This is the temple. It's supposed to be the place where people come to worship, where people come to pray, as he says, a house of prayer for all peoples. But the presence of the money changers and the buyers and the sellers, they were making a a den for robbers, a hideout for criminals. And so Jesus cast out both the buyers and the sellers Not so much as an indictment against them, against the idea of commerce, but against the priestly establishment that had allowed this to happen and done this to the people of God. You see, the religious leaders were robbing the people of the ability to enjoy God's presence through worship. The buyers and sellers, the money changers, they were buying and selling things that were used in the ceremonial worship of God. As we're told here, uh, pigeons. Pigeons were used by the poor, the poorest of the poor, as a substitute. And this was all permissible under God's law as a substitute for the more expensive animals that were offered up in sacrifice, uh, seeking God's forgiveness through worship. 
And the price is, we know from historical records, that these money changers, these buyers and sellers, uh, were selling these pigeons at now, were so exorbitant as to be prohibitive to the poor. If you were poor, you could not worship God through the ceremonially prescribed means that God had given you because men were taking advantage of you. They were putting an undue burden on you to keep you from worship. They were restricting it to the elite. And that is a fundamental aspect of the curse upon this world because of sin. You see, sin has made worship of God impossible unless God does something about it to intervene for us. Sin separates us from the presence of God. So we need God to come to us. And God in His grace and mercy has made a way for us. He has always made a way for His people to enjoy His presence and worship Him. And that is through the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. In the old administration of God's covenant of grace, that was carried out through this ceremonial worship in the temple, through the sacrifices and the rituals of the temple. And those sacrifices, those rituals, those feasts, they all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They were meant to give people hope that there was indeed a one true sacrifice that would remove their sins forever as far as the east is from the west. And so when these money changers come in and they make it difficult or impossible for people to worship God through that means of grace that he's given them, they are barring them from what they need. They're barring them from hope. They're, they're blocking them from the riches of God's blessings that he communicates towards them. And so what does Jesus do? He walks into the temple and he's like, no way. This is for all people that want to come and worship me in faith. He confronts the problem. He casts out the barriers that kept the people from enjoying God's blessings through covenant worship. And we need a king who confronts what needs to be confronted. We need a king who will open the way of worship so we can enjoy the presence of God. We need a king who's willing to confront our own sin that keeps us separated from God and throws open for us wide the gates of heaven so that we might enter through faith. Jesus is that king. So he's a gentle king. He is a confrontational king. And finally, Jesus is a powerful king. We need a powerful king. You see, he is gentle. He is meek. But he is not weak. And he displays his power by bringing healing hope to the powerless, the poor, the pitied of Jerusalem. As we read in verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, last week, I did point out that the healing miracle in Jerusalem of the blind men was the last recorded healing miracle. That is true in detail. It is the last recorded healing miracle in detail. This is a summary, summary statement. We've seen these all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. They're a summary of what Jesus did. Uh, as he tra- journeyed across Galilee, he heals people. He brings hope. What does he do when he finally gets to Jerusalem? 
what he has always done. He healed those who need healing. He restored and thus displayed his divine power as the king of kings. You see, we don't need a king who simply brings a moral revolution. We don't need a king who simply uh, changes society into uh, what we would feel is morally acceptable. We need a king who will actually heal our brokenness, our sinfulness, and do away with our pain by renewing us, by removing our unrighteousness so that we might be declared righteous before God. We need a king who restores what was lost by sin, by our own sin. We need a powerful king. So Jesus, he is a gentle king that we need. He is the confrontational king that we need. He is the powerful king that we need. He is the king that we need if we hope to ever be restored back to right relationship with God and enjoy his blessings forever. And that is how he comes to Jerusalem. That is how he comes to you. Not in violence, but in gentleness. Not ignoring our sinfulness, but actually confronting it with his perfect righteousness. Not in weakness, but in power. Power that can heal and restore and mend. And it is those three things, Jesus' humble gentleness, his courageous confrontation, and his perfect power that come together in one defining moment in the cross. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday so that he could die for sinners on Good Friday. And Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and died on Good Friday so that he could rise again to life on Easter Sunday. He comes to you as your king so that you might have life forevermore and know the joy of his gospel. And coming as a king, he is coming to you boldly. He is leaving you with only two options. He came to Jerusalem saying, crown me as your king or crucify me. You can either receive Jesus as your king or you can reject him, but you cannot ignore him. He doesn't leave you that option. And so the question that comes from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is this. What will you do with the king? Will you submit to him? Will you fall before him who is gentle? And will you worship him as he deserves? Or will you, like the high priests of Jerusalem and the many of the people of his day, reject him? Now, if you receive him, he will receive you in gentleness. He will also confront your sin that is within the temple of your heart, driving it out so that the Spirit of God might abide there and you may have peace with Him. And He will heal your brokenness. He will heal your sin. But if you reject Him, know this, Jesus is still King no matter what. You may not bow to Him now, but one day you will. The scriptures tell us that every knee, every person that has ever been created from Adam to the final person that will be born on this earth will bow 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will do that because this is the King, and He is still King. You see, He's going to come riding once again into the city, but this time when He comes, it will not be upon a donkey. It will be upon a great horse. And all who wish to oppose him will receive the reward of their opposition. But for those who have received him in faith, who has crowned him as king, who have bowed to him, submitting to his gentleness and his power, they will not flee in fear at his coming, but will run to him in rejoicing. Because to them it means redemption is finally fulfilled. You see, all the people who are his... The living and the dead will be rise to life on that day and they will hear a loud voice, the words of Revelation 21 coming out to them. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, that's your king that is coming to you. So rejoice. Our night will soon end. And the day will rise when we will see the king riding into his city. And we will with one loud voice, be able to praise him together. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have sent to us our King, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he comes to us in gentleness, confronting us in our sinfulness, but powerful enough to save us. And so I pray, Father, that you would help your people to rest in these promises, that they would look forward to the horizon as the king will come once again in great glory, not on a donkey, but in power and might so that all might see. And all of our sorrow, all of our night, all of our tears will be swallowed up in joy as we are finally redeemed in him. Father, we pray for those who continue to reject him. We pray that you would soften their hearts, that they would say that he has come in gentleness, that now is the day to bow to him, not later when he comes in judgment, but now so that when he does come as judge, they will not see condemnation, but they will have life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.